Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. and welcome to a new episode of the ballot box elections around the world this week uh, is another thematic episode we will be back to to our kind of normal election coverage episodes next week for the nova scotia election this week though we're going to be taking a look at electoral manipulation and the the ways in which um and i think we're going to confine ourselves to more or less democratic settings this week but the ways in which actors can tweak with electoral rules and and various other things to to sort of spin elections in their advantage their advantage um so yeah so this is going to be a, a fun and hopefully not too depressing uh look at, at at kind of ways in which um in which elections can be can be manipulated like that uh, before we get into that though how is everyone doing how is how is manchester chris uh, very good. Um, I don't really have anything to report, but I'm I'm fine and dandy. My my trip back from Dorset was uh, fine, and I'm just getting on with things really. And how about how about in New York, Andres? It's really hot, but <laughs> I'm I'm good. <laughs> it's extremely, it's extremely hot. And when, and, when, and when someone from Mexico says it's really hot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's really no, it's bad. It's bad. Mm. This week's gonna be really like the, hopefully the last heat wave of, of August, but mm. who knows? God. Yeah. How about how about London? How's everything in, in London? Uh it has been um very rainy, as as is London's want on the weekend. Um I've had my parents down to stay, which has been quite nice. Always lovely to yeah. see them. And then tomorrow is vaccine two, which is also quite exciting. Uh, yeah. So yes. Excellent. <laughs> major, major news. Good. Excellent. Um, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be fully. We'll be fully vaccinated and can do this uh, podcast. Yeah. Record this podcast with our with our masks on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll be nice right. to be uh, a fully vaccinated podcast. Uh, mm. <laughs> completely different to coronavirus. You can you can listen to this podcast without any fear of catching coronavirus from this one. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> okay so um yeah so as we've said at the top i think we, we we're going to be taking um a look at electoral manipulation um we won't be in this episode um you might in a, in a future episode in a couple of weeks we're sort of considering doing a, an episode about um kind of more about semi-authoritarianism and or electoral authoritarianism um but in this uh, we'll be talking about countries which we pretty much more or less considered to be democracies um but have, we've had lots of situations where people have done things which aren't quite fair to mm. <laughs> to sway election results in the in their manner and the different ways that we can do that um and the main things we're going to look at is um is gerrymandering um uh, sort of voter suppression um ways in which people can kind of tweak electoral laws um in their advantage uh, and also um a, a subject for the kind of the very modern age um talk about kind of social media kind of uh, disinformation misinformation as well as way so unfortunately um american listeners we will be talking about the us a fair bit but we're going to do our best to sneak in kind of um some other examples from elsewhere as yeah. well yeah i think we'll kick off with gerrymandering i think um so yeah mm. so does anyone want to have a go at telling us where this comes from oh this term. um the term gerrymander mm. um 
So um, I imagine we probably all know this to a certain extent, but um, famously it um, comes from the name of a Massachusetts governor by the name of um, Jerry. I forget whether that was his first name or his second name. Being second name now, but um, mm. it, it's second name. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but um, he um, drew districts that are described as looking like a salamander, and so um, it was described as a gerrymander. Um, and obviously, probably the first thing that comes to people's minds when they think about gerrymandering today is. Um, very oddly shaped districts in parts of the US, some of which are um, almost comically odd looking, um, which have clearly been drawn um, to advantage um, a certain political party or sometimes even a a certain political incumbent um, quite often. Yeah, so I think... um... One of the things to note about electoral districts, it's very obvious, but it, it's worth noting because it's one of the things that's kind of structuring gerrymandering. Electoral districts in the United States have very few rules about how they have to be drawn, except mm-hmm. that they must be contiguous, right? As all kind of geographical units would need to be, right? So there can't be any break in them. But people who um, incumbents believe vote for them or no vote for them don't live in nicely kind of round Mm. um kind of compact size neighborhoods they spread out and so and american so um, rules in the united states allow for incumbents to draw districts yeah Yeah, which is an oddity yes yeah yeah it's worth noting here that in the united states it's usually state legislatures who are, who are essentially drawing the boundaries. Um, whereas, for example, in the UK, we have um, the independent boundary commissions, which are um, headed by um, typically geographers, judges, people like that, who, I mean, when I say judges, to an American audience, that probably sounds, it sounds like it would be more of a partisan role than in the UK, but judges in the UK are are very much seen as a as non-partisan entities most of the time. Um, so, um, it, it, so the boundary commissions are are seen as fully politically independent and generally behave as such. So it's it's um, so it's a kind of clear rule example of the institutional rules shaping the outcome. Shaping the outcome in a way that is designed to reduce competition, right? Mm. To reduce the possibility of incumbents losing power. So therefore it falls within electoral manipulation. Yes. Even though it doesn't, even though there's no fiddling with ballot papers or voter rolls or Mm. voter IDs, right? Yeah, and interestingly, I think it would be fair to say that this aspect of American politics has ramifications for how um, the international community treats um, elections in other countries too. Because, for example, in most rule international codes or rules of like how elections should be run, gerrymandering is not mentioned because, of course, it would be embarrassing to the United States. Um, so that that therefore allows um, for 
and lots of countries to get away with gerrymandering on the basis that they're not violating those codes. Mm. Um, right. Yeah, it's also, I mean, just, just to yeah. contrast this. So in, in, in the US, it's actual politicians who've just won an election who get to draw the map mm. of the districts. Mm. And so they will obviously draw a map that's most favorable for them to remain in power, right? Yeah. In Mexico, it's an, an algorithm. A computer draws 90% of the map. So only about 10% of each district's shape can then be actually modified by human beings. And it has to happen through an independent commission. Mm. So there's definitely different ways of doing it. And the US does it in the kind yeah, of yeah. most, in the worst yeah. possible way, actually. And, and also strange mm. that the federal level electoral districts are being drawn up by states as well, rather than mm. there's no sort of federal electoral yeah. commission or anything equivalent to that either. Yeah, so it's kind of one of those um, characteristics of the US Constitution that almost all um, all elements of the voting process are, are state responsibilities. Mm. So um, from voter registration, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, yeah, which is one reason why it's quite hard to remove in the US. Because, for example, if you're a democratic state that decides to move to fair districting and then like the republican state um then but then republican states aren't what you're essentially mm -hmm. doing is federally you're removing an advantage um in your home states for no reward in other states and therefore you're you're essentially helping the republicans mm. bias the electoral system towards you and of yeah. course and i and i also and i'm not saying that democrats haven't benefited from gerrymandering in the past or have been, you know, have at times, and, and some democratic states are very much gerrymandered, but it tends to be in democratic states now that the pressure is stronger against gerrymandering than in Republican ones. Yeah, I didn't say, I mean, yeah, it's a kind of long durée look at, we find villains on both sides with this, um, mm. and certainly there are still today states which are gerrymandered in favor of, of democratic um, yes, incumbents. Particularly large, Maryland yeah. and Illinois are very much very strongly gerrymandered. Yeah, democratic. But 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 large, largely to in the past decade at least the effect has been very much to disadvantage the Democrats in kind of nationwide contests. Mm. I mean, and it's produced in the congressional elections quite a few of these kind of um, wrong winner type elections. Um, yeah. as well, where Democrats have have nationally outpolled Republicans, but have still come up quite a bit short. Um, in, in terms of seats, um, which, and I think there's a strong likelihood that we could head for one of those again in a, in a couple of years as well um, for the yeah, next midterms. Yeah, it's, it's not probably, plausible. Yeah, you, the, the gap that you need now is smaller than it was, but the Democrats still probably need to lead by about five points nationally um, in order to... Um, win the to win the house of representatives um and of course you could argue that the senate is even worse because of course the senate but the senate is is obviously um malapportioned would be the the, the term um in that um which is means that you're overrepresenting certain types of areas which um is obviously something that you can have an argument about but at, at least that's the 
said its constitutional purpose, <laughs> whereas the House is constitutionally supposed to represent the views of the population. So it does strike me as a little bit more odd when the House, when we accept, for example, the House producing a wrong winner election. Um, mm. Yeah, um, so a report by the Brennan Center for Justice found that Republicans benefit, have a net benefit of between 16 and 17 seats, thanks to gerrymandering. Mm. That's yeah. 435. Mm. So that's, you know, that's, you know, pretty it's substantial. Substantial, yeah. Mm. Obviously, Absolutely. under the premise that, you know, Democrats also benefit from, from uh, gerrymandering, just they benefit from it less. Mm. Yeah. And of course, that's in part because recently the Republicans have controlled more state legislatures as well. So um, particularly, um, you know, in the era that Obama was in power, the Republicans swept through state go- state level governments in the in the US. And so that gave them a lot of ability to change districts. And in some states which had never had a unified Republican government before, but had it um, under Obama, um, because of the particular nature of the electoral waves that now seem to be generated in the US to against whoever is an incumbent. Um, so, yeah, for example, my dad's home state of uh, North Carolina um, has only very rarely had unified government by any party uh, um, since the end of the uh, since the civil uh, civil rights legislation came in, and it was a real kind of shock to the system when the Republicans got it, um, because there's still that kind of vestige of like old democratic voting in the um, ha- in house elections that ha- used to happen in North Carolina, um, which yeah ended under Obama. So. This, you know, podcast is not the best medium to show the egregious figures um, <laughs> that are the shapes of electoral districts in the United States. Mm. But I can describe some of them or at least tell you their names. So one is called, for example, Ohio's uh, ninth district is called the Snake by the Lake because mm. it is a very thin uh, district mm. that goes around this lake. Um, to ensure certain demographics um, is, is part of the, the electoral district. Another one in, in Baltimore and Maryland, the third district, resembles um, something like an earthworm contorting after uh, it's kind of uh, emerged from the, from, from the land. Um, famously, campuses across the United States, like uh, uh, college campuses and, and specifically historic HBCUs, historically black, black colleges and universities, are split. So mm. congressional districts are drawn so that there's a line in the middle of the campus and it dilutes the power of um, young people's votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, districts in the capital of Texas, Austin, have these huge hinterlands that then mm. kind of, kind of, kind of uh, reach into the city and take up a part of the city and then dilute the city's vote by the rural hinterlands. So that yeah. Austin would be like, all of the electoral districts of Austin would be you know, firmly de- Democrat, but because they have these huge hinterlands attached to them, there are more districts that touch Austin, but then dilute the vote. And then yeah, all, the, all but one tends to be 
yeah. uh, Democrat. Um, yeah, this is known as um, cracking. It's uh, quite a common technique. Um, it's also, um, and the Austin one is also kind of a, a slightly amusing one because the um, they were a bit overambitious in 2010 in the Austin area, um, and um, and basically created a lot of districts that are basically like 60-40 districts. And then when the 2018 midterms came around and you had that kind of big growth in the Democratic vote in the suburbs in Texas, um, like they, basically the Democrats broke to gerrymander. And so there was like a massive, at the state level anyway, they, there, was, there was like a massive wave of seat gains in, in Austin, because the, which was actually going to the point where you could argue that the gerrymander was actually now working in the Democrats' favour because they were taking a lot of seats that they were they were taking seats that um, they were taking areas that perhaps would have been naturally Republican if they'd been kind of brought up into something a little bit more natural looking. Um, so yeah, it's a, um, worth remembering that gerrymandering isn't like magic; it can backfire. Um, uh, which I I know that Jonathan has a favourite example of. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we can talk about um, the, another another country which I suppose has a little bit of a reputation for gerrymandering is Ireland. Um, or, or did it? It did. I yes, think this actually yes. led to the creation of um, independent boundary commissions. Yes, yeah. yes, that's, that's that's very true. I mean, especially um, a lot of people know that Northern Ireland for a long time was was. Um, very synonymous, especially at local level for gerrymandering, um, mm. especially in cities such as such as Derry, which had a Catholic majority, but managed to produce solidly unionist councils for for many decades mm. um, because of gerrymandering. Um, there also was was a was a feature of the republic's politics as well. Um, so it was the for the forty eight election. There was also a case in which. Um, a, a new party was was on the rise and the government decided suddenly that the district magnitude as most of the seats was going to reduce quite significantly um, and consequently the new party didn't gain very many seats at all um, mm. but this is yeah the most the most kind of famous example which has also got its own name um, where the gerrymandering did substantially backfire was for the 1977 election um, the, which has become known as the as the Tully Mander um, named after Named after the, uh, the the minister who drew up the boundaries, who was called Tully, um, and has given his name to this um, this kind of unfortunate mm. tactic. Um, so there was a, a coalition government, the Fine Gael and the Labour Party at the time, um, and they basically tried to devise a, a system. Obviously, we've talked in the past that Ireland uses single transferable votes, so they basically tried to place um, three seat uh, constituencies wherever they thought that the coalition parties would do well. So the... the, the Particularly uh, Dublin. Mm, yes, yeah. yeah. So the, the hope being that they would get two of the seats and Fianna Foyle, the main opposition party, would, would just get one and then they would put big district magnitudes um, where Fianna Foyle would do strong so it would kind of dilute their presence there. Um, Fianna Foyle kind of had this, like, in, in sort of almost in desperation, adopted this quite populist... Um, campaign offering a lot of kind of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of um sort of new public spending and stuff um mm. and it did have it did, and, and did, to be fair had fairly put a popular leader in, in jack lynch at the time um but they ended up 
becoming so well supported that the gerrymander actually was kind of reversed and ended up working for Fianna Foyle and led to Fianna Foyle getting a, an outsized parliamentary majority mm. in the end after this. Um, but yeah, and I think partly because it clearly hadn't worked and also because the um, because it was so blatant, as Chris said, this was one of the main events which led to the establishment of an independent boundary commission and stopped the parties in, in Ireland from drawing up um, drawing up the district boundaries mm. themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and that I think that was a it's a good example reminder that the weakness of gerrymanders is that most of them have at some point a ratchet point where if a party performs better than expected at a certain level, it will reverse in its favour because. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, because because ultimately you're still dealing with the same voters, they're, they're still spread out um, everywhere. Um, and what you're trying to do with gerrymanders is, is you're trying to create a situation where um, districts have just enough opposition voters in them to um, to make those votes very inefficient um, without kind of getting to the point where the, the opposition voters might win. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, so, um, uh, so uh, and of course, then you don't always necessarily need a huge amount of electoral change to suddenly reach a point where actually the um, opposition voters are suddenly now the majority. Um, uh, it, yeah, and Ireland was a good example of that. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's it's an incredibly effective technique of voter manipulation or well not voter yeah. manipulation sorry electoral manipulation because it's um it's it freezes it it reduces electoral competition yeah. um without you know being very blatant and I'm going to now take some I'm just gonna read to you some statistics from or some data from Cheeseman and Class's book uh, How to Rig an Election, which shows how effectively gerrymandering works for incumbents in the United States. So in 2016, out of 435 representatives that were up for election, only eight incumbents lost their their seats. And again, in the 2016 election in the United States, out of a total of 435 um, elections, only 17 were decided by margins of 5% or less. Only yeah. 17. That's, that's incredibly, like, that's an incredibly small number. Mm. And one that you wouldn't expect from a vibrant, competitive uh, democracy, right? Where there's, like, ideas yeah. that are, you know, and policies yeah. that are yeah, and um, there out is, there. Yeah, and there is some discussion of, like, self-sorting making this worse. Because, for example... We're now moving into a phase where essentially like Democrats are moving into cities and Republicans are moving are increasingly based in rural areas. So there is yeah. there is something there, but nonetheless, that doesn't explain all of it by any stretch of the imagination. Um yeah, it's um yeah, it's a deeply unfortunate practice. Yeah. But one that and one that is not criticized enough by the international community. No, it's and, and one last kind of perverse or, yeah, uh, element of gerrymandering in the United States 
is that it's also it also has a very strong racial element to it, right? Mm. So it was an attempt. It's it's part of a series of attempts to suppress minority racial mm. minorities from voting or from having power, reaching power yeah. through elections. So it was, yeah. you know, it's it's been an increasingly important technique post 1965. Yeah. Um, and the Voting Rights Act. So that's that's yeah. also kind of dark part of the... Uh, yeah, of, uh, there's an interesting legal element where um, where officially it's Ill- illegal to draw racially, um, to draw, um, to, to gerrymander on, racial, on a racial basis. Um, but, um, but you can gerrymander legally on a political basis so it comes into this so if you look at like supreme court cases on this like some gerrymanders have been struck down for example in north carolina and pennsylvania um in recent years um where because they decided that they've been done on a racial basis but a lot of the arguments essentially come down to well all the minorities are democrats Therefore, we're not gerrymandering them out of contention because they're minorities. We're gerrymandering them out of contention because they're Democrats, which is fine. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I think it kind of is a good reminder that people have multiple identities that sometimes co-align and that it can itself. Um, and the interactions of those obviously have political effects um yeah um there's a similar thing in in malaysia um malaysia has horrifically and that's a kind of semi-authoritarian context um oh oh, um but i i remember talking to someone about malaysia who said to me um who knew knew the country quite well who said to me the thing is, the districts in Malaysia are so gerrymandered that the government doesn't even know who lives in them anymore. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, you do get to some like really absurd points in business stuff. Yeah, so there's obviously there's there's other ways um, other than just drawing the district boundaries um, that you can modify electoral law to benefit um, one party or the other. And there are obviously there's a lot of occasions in which um, in which uh, which which parties incumbent and incumbent governments will decide that the next election will be conducted under a different or slightly different electoral system, um, which just happens to um, either advantage them or, or more likely disadvantage their opponents as well. Um, so I know I, I've got a couple of um, examples from. Uh, from Greece that I, I would will uh, relate. I know there's also that Chris has a has a favorite electoral system change from France that yeah. <laughs> might well, which will probably fit under this um, under this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, please go ahead to tell us about Greece. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there's um, this this has kind of happened a, a few times. Um, a couple of occasions. Um, First, uh, 19, the 1956 election, um, the kind of uh, sort of governing um, uh, conservatives um, at the time, um, led by um, Karaman Lis, um, who will later gain a more democratic reputation because he 
returned after the fall of the military um, dictatorship. Um, but at the time, um, he was facing stiff competition from a coalition of, of more liberal parties. Um, and so they instituted a new electoral system, which was uh, a combination of first-past-the-post districts in rural areas where his party was strongest, and then proportional um, districts in urban areas where uh, the opposition parties were stronger. And this kind of had a predictable effect of, of boosting his seat shares in the in the in the in the rural districts and then um reducing the the seat count for the for the opposition coalition um meaning that although they won more votes um the conservatives won more seats in that one um and then 1989 um the greece after the um after democracy was restored um in the in the late 1970s um adopted um, the system which was just still in place of having a kind of majority bonus of deciding most seats by proportionally and then having what has no normally been 50 additional seats to the largest party which normally means that one party has an overall majority for their term um, so the the incumbent government which is the, the kind of, of the center left of PASOK um, was coming into the 1989 election it seemed likely that it, it might lose it'd been in power for two terms both of which it enjoyed its majority bonus and governed with majority, changed the electoral rules to a purely proportional system, um, which meant that in the 1989 election, no party ended up with a majority, even though the, mm. um, the opposition, the new democracy, won more votes. And if the old system was still in place, would have won that kind of absolute majority. Um, and this led to a, a period of having a couple of um, a few elections within the space of, of, of a couple of years, um, of just kind of and a, one point, a slightly bizarre um, conservative um, communist coalition, which governed for a very brief period um, before they got back onto the, the majority bonus system, which still maintained. Um, this was still that well, no, some people may be aware that Syriza tried to do this for the last election as well, although it didn't have the, um, the mm. quite enough, a large enough majority in parliament to enact it for the 2019 election to the, the uh, with the effect that it's since been reversed um but yeah mm. they they sort of uh, realizing that another party was going to benefit from the from the additional 50 um tried to switch to a more proportional system in that in that case yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, yeah, and th this is something that you see a lot, as you as you mentioned. Like, I'm a hugely fond of the the French electoral system change in the 1980s. Um, I won't drill on it much because we discussed it in a previous episode in our constitutional quirks episode. Um, but the um, French president had been elected on a platform of introducing PR. Realised he quite liked having a big parliamentary majority, so kind of left the system where it was um, until um, they were approaching the 1986 election and um, it became clear that the centre-right was very likely to win the elections. Um, so he basically changed to PR at that point to divide the right, um, make the, um, and make the Socialist Party the biggest party. And um, particularly to um, uh, and particularly um, that division also of the right also in, involved the the nascent for, um, for national 
which um, took 35 seats that election, my seats the front has ever won um, in a French election, um, which, but the centre right have won a majority of two, so they switched back to um, to um, the two round system at the next election, which happened in 1988. And that's a kind of classic example of parties because there's really multiple parties involved trying to change system um, essentially for what they think is their strategic interest, which of course is something that basically all political reform has, to my mind, some kind of um, some kind of interaction with self-interest, like not in the sense necessarily that political reforms are done for entirely self-interested reasons. Um, but for example, but it's very rare to see a party doing something in power that it thinks it's explicitly against its interests. Um, so um, and 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 you know even when even when parties are doing things that are probably in their interests, they will try to coax it in in terms that sound like they're about democracy in some way. Um, generally speaking, um, it, 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 it's um, it, and and sometimes I think they believe those things. Um, uh, quite a lot of the time, I think they at least believe some of it. Um, and I, I think that was, for example, the case with the socialists was they could legitimately say, "Look, we're changing to PR because we've long thought to have PR." in the um, National Assembly. We've long, um, we it's a change away from a constitution that we don't particularly like, that was to some extent explicitly designed to work against the interests of the French left. Um, bloody, bloody bar. But it was also to screw with the right. <laughs> and like, uh, so yeah, sometimes this stuff isn't quite so easy to pick apart. Like, what's what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think we'll we'll um, have now talk about something slightly more overt in voter suppression. Um, mm. Yeah, it, we, again, is one we're going to have to talk about the US quite a lot. Um, I do think it's as interesting. I've been reading at the moment a uh, a history of modern Spain, which we've been talking about the. Um, the the Turno Pacifico period, um, where the was basically a kind of organized sort of thirty years or so of organized um, electoral fraud, where the the kind of country's elites organized the, the the two main the liberal conservative parties to basically kind of swap government um, every four years and just engineered landslide victories for each other every time, and th these techniques very much on um, on display in that it was probably very common to situate um, polling stations in the middle of um, like measles hospitals or on the top of the tallest building in the city or something um, or mm. so that yeah that voters would stay away from the polls or the voters that would not vote for the candidate that was supposed to win would would kind of stay away from the polls. Yeah, and and that is sadly something that, for example, you do see in in, in parts of the US. That, for example, um, polling stations will often be um, will often be more sparsely located in minority areas areas than in majority white areas. 
um, or um, or you know roadworks will mysteriously appear between the um, electoral registry office and um, black areas in uh, you know. Um, yeah, little things that are clearly designed to make these things a little bit harder, um, you know, while well, you know falling short of, for example, full Jim Crow kind of style suppression of um, of literally not giving people the vote unless they can unless they can um, reach some arbitrary limit. Right now, the United States is um, going through kind of a political, I don't know if crisis is the right word, but very much on the political agenda are a series of laws that are either proposed or have been enacted, mostly in Republican-controlled state legislatures, to limit um, access to the ballot. And as, as Chris rightly said, this goes back to, I mean, it has a very kind of important history in the United States because uh, uh, the Jim Crow didn't, didn't explicitly forbid uh, African-Americans from voting, right? It just suppressed votes in, yeah. in kind of like legal jargon and had like officially kind of colorblind laws, but that were actually tailor-made to, to make it impossible for black people to vote, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and also, and, and also, you know, they, they had enough interpretation in them that you could so, for example, the so a lot a lot the Jim Crow laws were essentially about like tests for to demonstrate that you had sufficient literacy and learning. Um, and obviously, black people typically have lower levels of literacy and so on. But a lot of the questions on the tests were basically designed to be incredibly hard to interpret as well, so that you could so that the people doing tests when it was handed in could basically go well uh, could basically make up a reason why it was that the a, a someone had um, failed a test or passed a test depending on who they were right and so part of the civil rights era kind of victories at the legislative level was a law called the voting rights act that allowed for the federal government to, to kind of um, provide provided powers for the federal government to 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 oversee electoral administration in the South, but then mm. also modify certain electoral procedures to ensure um, you know fair access to the ballot, and it's mm. and 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 this Voting Rights Act has in many ways been dismantled by the Supreme Court, which has yeah. inc increasingly reduced the powers of the Federation over the state when it comes to the sort of powers it has and mm. sort of like leeway that states have to enact voter suppression. I mean, so if you ask like Republicans, it's not about voter suppression, it's about voting security, right? Electoral security. Because yes. they're asking for things that in other democracies seem fairly standard, such as uh, a, you know, a state issued ID but in the United, in the context of the United States, are very very clearly geared towards suppressing minority votes, especially in a mm. country that has you know a very lim that doesn't have a national ID per se, has you know driver's yeah. licenses, etc. I yeah. think that, that's one part of it. 
the, the other part is the fact that a lot of states um, modified some procedures to make vote by mail or early in-person voting easier because of the pandemic. Um, mm. Kind of recognizing that 2020 was going to be a very kind of difficult year for people to vote in, you know, congregate in, in places down the line for a long time, et cetera, right? So for the first time in 2020, um, nearly half of Americans voted by mail. And actually only about 30% voted um, on election day, which also happens to be on the first Tuesday of November because of a strange um, quirk in, in the US constitution, mm -hmm. right? So it's also a very inconvenient day to vote. So now, so obviously Republicans lost, there were um, kind of record-breaking, there was record-breaking turnout and specifically um, aided by these kind of novel modalities of voting. And obviously the, the losing candidate, uh, Donald Trump, said that the election was stolen and kind of has uh, incentivized local politicians to also adopt this bizarre and damaging um, narrative around fraudulent vote. So they've responded by um, enacting now 24 bills, uh, 28, sorry, 28 new laws across, across the United States at the local level, which restricts both the modality, so now they're trying to reduce the, the, the possibility of either early voting or mail voting. They're actually, they're also prohibiting drop boxes, a place where you can just like leave your vote in a, in a sealed uh, envelope. Um, in order to, they say, increase voting security because in their narrative, um, there was a fraud and the election was stolen for Donald Trump. But in, but in reality, it's in order to ensure that they can freeze, they can make elections less competitive in their favor. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and some of this stuff has been fairly blatant too. So for example, the Texas photo ID law, um, I think famously in the list of IDs that you um, gave um, a student ID, which is an ID issued by the state because the University of Texas is a huge um, state public uh, service um, it wasn't allowed but a gun license was <laughs> um, which you know is telling um, in North Carolina the voter ID law actually got struck down by the courts because they found the evidence that basically the North Carolina state legislature had essentially asked for a list of um, IDs by which races tended to possess them and then the law out the other end had basically just not featured any forms of id that black people disproportionately tended to have and that um white people disproportionately didn't tend to have so it was like quite it was incredibly blatant that that was racially motivated and so the court, the court struck it down uh, on that basis um, and yeah, as you say, I think voter ID is something that a lot of countries have, but most of the countries that have it are ones that issue some kind of universal national ID card. And it's the problem, the problem isn't with the idea of having some kind of identification to vote, and it's widely considered to be something that ideally you should have. Um, a, a, a kind of polling state, a, a polling station present 
of impersonation. It's not something that's ideal, not something that's always necessary, but like obviously lots of countries around the world have had genuine problems with impersonation at polling stations. Um, I've had some experiences of um, because I've done voter observation in, in Ukraine and in Armenia. Um, there's kind of conversations that are coming up there around kind of personation and and fraudulent, um, but there's not any real evidence of it in Western countries, and so and 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 so the kind of security argument starts lingering on things like, well, just because there's no evidence of it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, which yeah, it's it's proving a negative, <laughs> so or. Um, or starts going into where well, we're trying to basically make people feel that the vote is secure, even if it actually already is. <laughs> like, um, which, for example, is something that's come up in Britain is actually right now having a uh, having a similar debate around voter ID and um, and because the Conservatives want to introduce voter ID. Um, but um, uh, but there's very there's negligible rates of um, personation at British polling stations, um, and then if, uh, the argument one of the arguments they're using is oh it'll make people feel more secure about um, but polling by the electoral commission shows that 80% of people think that the voting system works great here. It's like, how much more like, secure do people need to feel? Um, like, um, you know, I, I don't think people... There's no real evidence that people don't feel insecure about voting in the UK. Um, but, yeah, uh, obviously... It's a convenient line of reasoning. Yeah. Should, we, should we talk about um, social media and technology, which is something that's yeah. very much in the news? Yeah, okay. I just think the social media thing is, is just so widespread. Um, mm. Social media, by social media thing, I think. Like, how, how is it that misinformation and disinformation is a form of electoral manipulation? Um, I don't mm. think it's a... I don't think it's necessarily a form of electoral man manipulation, disinformation, mm. or misinformation, yeah. except if it's in a sort of uh, at a certain scale, right? So I think that the general idea behind electoral manipulation, or one of the general ideas, is to distort the principle of one person, one vote. And that's what we saw with like gerrymandering or with voter suppression whereby people lose the ability to vote or their vote is counts less for, mm -hmm. for, um, uh, for pushing, for getting people into power. And uh, social media, what it does is it, it, can, it can have voter suppression kind of effects because there can be very disagreeable information about candidates or about the election at large yeah. that make people stay home or... or, or yeah. Or, or misleading um, ideas about how the election is functioning, or working, attempting to undermine, attempting to undermine it. Right, right, exactly. Or it can try to change people's minds to vote for a certain individual. Although I believe that research has focused mainly on um, kind of the turnout suppression that that misinformation has. 
Um, although it's not, you know, there, there is there is kind of like very negative campaigning on on different social media platforms. Social media, of course, it's like Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp groups, Telegram, etc. And so I just want to. Um, there is a great book called "A Lot of People Are Saying," which was about the new conspiracism and the threats to democracy that this implied um, by Russell Murhead and Nancy Rosenblum. And, and their argument is, it was a very compelling one. Basically, they said that um, conspiracy theories have always been around and they've always affected um, dem democracy and things like elections, but now they're affecting them on a much higher, much larger scale, partially because it's easier to disseminate conspiracy theories. And there's a kind of cognitive mechanism, which is different from the classical conspiracy theories theory that has all these pieces of evidence that create this kind of like um, mysterious story. So think of like, you know, who killed JFK or Bigfoot or mm -hmm. the Loch Ness Monster. Um, the new conspiracism only needs to implant doubt in people's mind. They don't, it doesn't need to be elaborate. There just needs to be enough doubt about a single process or person in order for that to have a cognitive effect. So people don't really need to have an elaborate theory about why the election was rigged. They just need for a lot of people to say that the election was rigged in order for people to, in order for potential voters to then imagine it could be without mm. necessarily convincing evidence. So yeah. by force of repetition, there is already this kind of mechanism that's playing out. And it's had, you know, very important effects on, it, it's had very important effects I think in very in really different um, democracies. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, I think Brazil was a really important case with with yeah. Bolsonaro. Yeah, and then, victory. yeah, and in fact, yesterday there was an interesting vote in Congress on um, introducing paper ballots, um, which was leading to a lot of social justice worrying as well as kind of other kind of worrying stuff. Um, so particularly. Bolsonaro's defense minister held a um, held a per military parade in Brasilia um, on the day that this was happening, which was a kind of clear kind of threat to the um, Congress that if you vote this bill down, um, we might consider cooing. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, so yeah, the, the Bolsonaro stuff is very scary, but perhaps for another time. Um, um yeah but yeah um, i mean e even in quite secure democracies like we see a lot of this stuff um in terms of, and and of course it interacts with um like foreign powers as well like how much of this stuff is you know yeah for example the russia report that the um uk parliament's intelligence committee released um, suggested that there was quite a lot of attempts by um, the Russian government to try and influence um, elections through in the UK through social media platforms, um, and yeah, that's and and to some extent that's a kind of almost an export of of Putin's kind of core um, insights that all you need to do is drive cynicism, so so that people don't feel like. Um, they can do anything. Um, so sowing sowing discord rather than just trying to make people believe in something is much easier. Right. Mm. Yeah. 
Mm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's getting cheaper. It's getting cheaper to have um, like massive disinformation campaigns. They're getting more frequent as well. Mm. They're very hard. I think it's my understanding that it's very hard to trace the money, um, you know, where the money came from, which is yeah. often a tool that um, electoral commissions or other oversight bodies use in order to ensure fair play in the election is, you know, you follow the money and then see whether or not there were kind of obvious political um, motives behind it or who was responsible for that. But with social media campaigns, I think the money can very easily be hidden through a series of different companies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Big big threat um, to, to the integrity of elections. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and in some ways, not entirely new. Um, like the Canadian railway scandal, kind of comes into this. So um, at the twenty eleven election in Canada, there was a major scandal because um, a large number of voters, particularly in the constituency of Guelph, although it happened in other constituencies as well, um, reported um, getting phone calls that um, were from robotic callers, the kind of ones that we're all kind of uh, used to getting um, through spam calls nowadays, um, which were claiming to be from the Canadian Electoral Commission, Elections Canada. And um, basically those electoral, those calls were implying that, uh, were said that um, for made up reasons to do with turnout, we are moving your polling station to another area and therefore you have to go vote there instead of where you're, you, where you're supposed to vote as well before. And um, all those calls were misleading. None of the polling stations have been moved. Um, and um, later investigation by Elections Canada, in fact, um, unearthed that it was being done by a contractor for the Conservative Party and that the only people who had received the calls had been people Conservative Party data had labelled as um, likely to vote against them. Um, so that, of course, led to a huge scandal. It's probably one of the things that um, contributed to bringing down the Stephen Harper government in Canada um, in the end and and, um, and bringing along Justin Trudeau's um, Liberal government in 2015. Um, so... Uh, it's so that's a good reminder that this stuff doesn't necessarily have to happen through social media social media social media it makes it easy to weaponize in many ways because it's like it's a mass um communication tool that kind of reaches a very large number of people at once and that for that and that reduces the amount of money and scale that you need but um you know there are other ways of doing these things you know and and to some extent lying to people in leaflets for example is is as old as as elections basically <laughs> um so yeah it's a troubling thing and as you say i think social media does make it much easier but um it's not necessarily new it's but it's uh, but the possibilities are enhanced by new technology i didn't know about this case and it's it's perfect yes yeah. it does, it, it does uh, reverberate very clearly with what's going on today without the need mm-hmm. of, of like smartphones yeah and the very fact that it's in canada as well which i think most people would think of as being 
a very successful yeah. democracy, not just a not 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 just a a a a one's the world's uh, one's the world's a, a kind of advanced democracy, but amongst the top tier of even democratic countries in terms of the facilitation of elections. So, um, as well as all this, it's one one thing that's always worth looking out for is rules found at electoral registration, um, which are often a way that in more authoritarian contexts, elections are manipulated. Um, um, so, and um, I have some kind of direct experience of this. Um, when I worked for the Electoral Reform Society, the first major campaign I worked on um, after um, when I came on board was to do with the introduction of individual electoral registration in the UK. So um, up until about 10 years ago, um, the UK had um, a very um, old fashioned but long-standing electoral, uh, electoral registration system where essentially everyone in the country would get a um, would get a letter through their door from their council, um, which was addressed to the head of the household, as if that's a thing in the modern world, um, uh, which basically just asked them to list the people um, who lived in the household and that and um, all those people would be added to the electoral register. And there was a few criticisms of this. First of all, you know, as I referenced, it was considered quite old fashioned, doesn't really resemble how people live anymore. Um, secondly, um, it, um, secondly, it was accused of being open to fraud because basically people could list um, on, on, on there as many people as they liked in theory. And that would allow for um, the, the creation of additional voters. It, and it had been accused by the um, by outside. Um, it, it had been said by um, international observers that this is a thing that the UK should change. Um, and so all parties were basically agreed on the need to move away from it in the, uh, uh, from the system to a system where of um, what was called in, um, individual electoral registration, basically people just registering themselves. Um, there was um, some significant, there was of course some differences between the parties on how to do that. Um, and around 2010, the Conservatives and uh, Liberal Democrats came to power in a in a coalition government. Um, and the Conservatives were particularly keen to push ahead with individual electoral registration. Um, and there was a lot of fear that this would, um, that the Conservative approach would lead to people falling off the electoral register, particularly people who don't typically tend to vote for the Conservatives, so younger people um, and ethnic minorities in particular, basically, um, individual electoral registration in the form that was being proposed. Uh, it, it was noted that the people who tend to be least likely to be registered are um, in those groups, as most of all for the reason that they tend to move a lot. And um, the individual electoral registration it, 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 um, legislation, that, as it was initially discussed, 
seem to give lots of opportunities for people to fall off the register quite quickly by, for example, um, not rolling over registrations as easily, um, by um, making it somewhat tougher for people to register, albeit but not by much. Basically, you had to give a national insurance number. That was the kind of new security measure that was introduced. Um, um, and by, for example, um, and uh, by and because, for example, lots of lots of um, young black men, like according to um, groups representing that community, um, are registered by their parents, and so there was a fear that, for example, that group might fall off the register for that reason. Um, and and um, and so. Um, at, the, at my former employer, we were arguing for some changes. One change, for example, that we argued for was to basically make it notionally compulsory to register to vote. So um, in the previous law, it was the case that the household could notionally be fined um, £1,000 um, for, for not responding to the electoral registration officer. Um, we basically advocated for keeping that. Um, it's worth noting there that that fine is almost never used. It's just something that electoral registration officers use to kind of go, hey, you can be fined for this, you know. <laughs> um, there's a like, little stick. Um, so, yeah, um, it's not something that uh, I think, I think if you actually look at the records, it's almost never been used, and most councils have a policy against never actually finding anyone. Although, don't say that to anyone who um, hasn't registered to vote. <laughs> so, yeah, we we argued for a range of changes to law, um, which was broadly successful. Um, it, you know, I don't want to toot our horn too heavily and say that it was only us. There were kind of a range of organisations. It would have been possible, probably, if it wasn't a coalition government, because, of course, um, Liberal Democrats worked out that it was probably in their interests to um, fight for the electoral registration system to um, operate fairly as well. Um, there, and, of course, there's a range of groups. Um, uh, but, yeah, there's something I was helping to lobby on. Um, and... I have to say that the, but there was a kind of range of potential quite scary ramifications as well as people dropping off the electoral register. It could have also affected the drawing of electoral boundaries quite significantly because of course in the UK, electoral boundaries are drawn um, from the electoral register. Like that's the, that's the basis of what it's used rather than from say the census or um, anything like that. Um, and in particular, the the date that's normally taken for drawing them is usually in a time that's pretty distant from elections. Um, so um, historically, it's tended to be taken on the 1st of December. Um, we're now actually in the process of drawing up a new set of boundaries. And for this one, they were taken from the 1st of March 2020, which is like almost a full, which, you know, is a few months after the previous election. Um, but wouldn't normally be a few months after the previous election because we had a weird December election <laughs> um, in 2019. That's the case. Um, 
and obviously people tend to fall off the electoral register or their, their registrations become inaccurate um, over the process of a year um, away from elections because people tend to most frequently register just before they, hand, they need to vote. Um, so that was something, um, and it's, uh, and I think the system has in all worked better than expected in part because of, in large part because of the online component. Um, you couldn't register to vote online before individual electoral registration was introduced because there was kind of, there was, it was obviously insecure. Um, there was um, no way of um, checking it and, um, Obviously, you could have had multiple people in the same household registering people at the same time. Um, and um, since since individual electoral registration was introduced, we have a very nice and efficient and um, online registration system with the kind of proviso that what tends to happen is that before general elections or before the EU referendum, the system becomes overloaded with registrations just before the deadline. And for the EU referendum, they actually ended up extending the um, deadline by a couple of days because the registrations overloaded the website. <laughs> um, the whole thing crashed. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, that has been a kind of interesting one. Um, but, yeah, that could have really shifted electoral registration because, as well as all this, all those obviously um, people tend to be less likely to be registered in certain areas, particularly London um, than others, um, particularly and particularly urban areas in general. And of course, that maps onto British electoral geography increasingly. Um, so um, you could see how if electoral registration had um, hadn't uh, had been written in the initial way it could, it could have had kind of multiple ramifications for the UK democracy, both in terms of um, both in terms of um, certain groups being less likely to be registered to vote, but also in terms of electoral boundaries being drawn in a way that was essentially malapportioned in favour of um, areas that ha um, had. Um, notionally higher registration le le um, levels, but in reality, um, would have just had higher rates of registration. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So good. Good to hear about a rare time, which a rare time I was part of a successful campaign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So no. um, we'll be shipped off to America soon to yeah. roll back <laughs> gerrymandering. Okay, yeah. right. so I think we'll leave it there for voter manipulation for now. As I mentioned, we are hoping to do an episode about the more um, the more overtly authoritarian side of this and talk about mm. kind of authoritarianism um, in a few weeks. Um, so next week we will be um, talking about an actual election um, in Nova Scotia, and I think we'll. We'll spin that out to doing a bit of a, a bit of a, a sort of Canada episode. Um, yeah, the, yeah, not not to, not to suggest that Nova Scotia itself isn't fascinating, um, but <laughs> I, I, we'll get a bit more material by talking about Canada in general. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so we'll see you all then.
Um, yeah. Yeah. Then goodbye. And as usual, please do rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. Right. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.